Welcome to the Turkey Hunter Podcast, the original all-turkey, all-the-time podcast with your co-hosts Andy Galliano and Cameron Weddington. In our weekly podcast, we're going to bring you some wild turkey calling tips like this. From there, we're going to go into, she's aggravated, there's another hen that's challenged her, or she's challenging another hen, she's going to cut an excited yelp. Advice from old pro turkey hunters like this. The turkeys typically don't like, I think, more times than not, to travel in an easterly direction into the sun first thing in the morning, especially after he gets up. It's a blinding thing. It, it, it's just like you. It's hard for you to see into the sun. Mm-hmm. So if I have a choice, I'm going to try to make it so that I'm going to be on the west side in the morning east side in the afternoon of a turkey exciting live hunts like this holy crap they're coming teach you how to cook your bird with advice such as this with some fresh rosemary and garlic and then cool that off and spread that along the inside of that butterflied turkey breast that we've seasoned on both sides wildlife management tips for your property especially with turkeys like this if you look at the type of habitats that turkeys need for nesting and brooding that tends to be habitat that can be managed more successfully with growing season fire than with dormant season fire. And hopefully along the way, we'll get plenty of these. Well, on November the 28th of 1953, I was attached. When I popped out of my mom and the baby doctor spanked me on the bottom, I went, oh, and I've been doing it ever since. <laughs> I like that. Thank you for tuning in, and now, for this week's show. Hello, and welcome back to this week's episode of the Turkey Hunter Podcast. You are listening to episode number 377, Quantum Metaphysics and its Relation to Turkey Hunting. And I am your co-host and the guy who went hunting this past weekend with no gun i don't i'm your co-host and two-part guy who no idea what the title of this show is <laughs> and the guy who is starting to save the pulse baby yes you are brother yeah. ringtail has caught a 22 between the eyes so one down 50 to go there you go but what, what were you hunting uh, well nothing or <laughs> <laughs> are you watching I wasn't going to kill anything with my bare hands. Well, it'd be pretty impressive if you did. Well, what'd you mean by your intro then? Well, that is what I had to use. Yeah. Gun in safe. All right. At home, not in truck. So it was a good weekend, well, needless good to say. Very relaxed. Yeah. That's Cannot nice. I did, I did some duck hunting. It was very, it's very cold here. Yeah. It's been unusually cold here 
for a longer period of time than normal. Yeah. Yeah, we went, we've been killing some ducks here and there. It's kind of hit or miss. If it freezes up, though, it's harder to get on them. But we've been doing all right, and I've geared up, and I'm on coon killing mode right now. So I got my first one last night, went and shot him this morning. So I got I got four more on. I'm just going to give a brief summary of how I'm going about it. I put out some traps in one spot, and they're already out. But I have two spots. I took two five-gallon buckets with lids on them, drilled inch-and-a-half holes around the bottom, three of them, and then filled it with dog food, and I have those hanging in the woods in two spots. And so that's basically only coons will go eat it. They have to stick their paw in there, so you train them to stick their paw in something. They're eating the dog food. I'll let them do that for about a week. Then I'm pulling the buckets, going to replace with dog-proof traps, and hopefully wipe out three or four, you know, per night for a couple nights would be nice. So the professional trapper that we had on the show years ago said, if you do something like that, you want to go in and you want to trap the entire family. So if you have eight or 10 or 12 traps to set in that area, then that's what you want to do. And then once you get all of those coons in one night, you can take it, put all your traps on the other dog food bucket and nice. have eight or 10 or 12 traps there to try to get that, that many coons out of there. That's what I'm planning to do. I'm going to pull one bucket, put, I think I have, well, I got, I know I have five traps and I'm hoping to have, I got a bucket of four or five out here right now. I just have to test and make sure they still work. They're kind of old, but if they work, you know, I'm hoping to have 10 or 12 traps and, and do exactly like you said, I'll just pull the bucket put them all in that one spot, hopefully roast them, and then move to the other bucket. Meanwhile, placing that bucket somewhere else on the farm to start attracting another family group. There you go. So I had a trapper friend tell me to do it with the bucket, and I thought, that's pretty smart, because corn, the deer will go eat it, but with dog food, raccoon's pretty much the only guy going to that. Yep, nest predators and, and, well, dogs. Yeah. Yeah, well, if there's any wild dogs romping around down there, they can stick their paw in a trap, too, I'll tell you. <laughs> even no, though they're they dog-proof. It's dog-proof. <laughs> well, I got one coon, and I I have four that were in within a foot of a dog-proof trap last night on camera and did not stick their paw in it, but it'll happen tonight, I bet. Yeah, and is there dog food in that trap? I have corn in those yeah. two traps. Yeah, and. There's a little corn on the ground, and they were eating the corn on the ground. So as soon as the corn on the ground's gone, then they're going to stick that paw in the trap. Yes, sir. It so, will happen. Oh, it's it's just a matter of time. I went and checked on it today. There's, it's exactly the situation. But, yeah, I'm getting pretty technical this year with them, just really trying to make sure I catch as many nest predators as I can because we're overrun with them here. It's gotten really out of hand, and so... I'm going to put work my butt off this month to get them. Yeah, yeah. It's You sent me a picture last night. It had like six coons in it. Yeah, so four, four of them within one foot of my freaking yeah. <laughs> trap. They're in there. They're in there. They just need to be eliminated. And, and that's the farm we didn't think had any coons. Oh, no, it doesn't. That's probably a low number of coons. Yeah, well, the, the swamp bottom where we duck hunt is 
unbelievable the amount of cans. So that that's going to be a whole other process down there. Yeah. Well, but anyway, we got me, a heck of a show today. Let me address the second part of your guy who. <laughs> so I don't want anyone to listen to this show. It is one of those ones as a podcast host where it's like, do we really want this data out there? And if you tell everybody it's quantum metaphysics or quantum mysticism and how it relates to turkey hunting, I'm sure some people are going to be like, yeah, I'll go listen to Fistful of Dirt podcast and I'll be cool. We'll skip this one. So it's really one that people are not going to want to skip. And the title to it on iTunes or, you know, any of the other podcast applications is going to be correct, which is how (laughs) turkey hunters hunt. And what we couldn't put in the title, but we talk about it in this show is, and how turkeys react. So yeah, it's pretty awesome. A new guest on the show, Elena, and she is awesome. Uh, definitely big time hunter. Awesome. Like Wisconsin's got him a good one up there. So she's awesome. Then we have Brett Collier back on and cool. I mean, what a neat idea for a study and a cool topic. And I'm, I'm excited to bring this to y'all. So I I think we should go ahead and hop in there. Let's get it on. All right. See you guys on the other side. Hey everybody. Cameron and I are excited to tell you that we have on the line with us this evening, Elena Garretts who is the wildlife biologist with Marinette County in Wisconsin. And we also have with us a non-stranger, a non-newbie on the show, and that's Brett Collier, who is a wildlife professor at LSU. And we have a very interesting show for you guys tonight. So, you know, we talk a lot about how we think turkeys react to us hunters being in the woods and hunting turkeys during turkey season. Well, we don't have to speculate anymore. We have the expert, being Elena Garretts, on the line with us to tell us all about this. And I have, well, I've told Cameron about three times that there's probably going to be several parts of this show that I'm going to want to keep in my hat and not share with you guys listening. So if the interview sounds a bit choppy, we've edited out all the good parts that you guys, that you hunters on public land don't need to know. So without further ado, Elena, how are you today? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me. Also, expert is very generous, but I'll take it. (laughs) You're definitely the expert. So we're glad to have you. Thank you for joining us. I'm ex- yeah, of course. I'm excited about learning more about this. So, and then... Brett, how are you today? Yeah, I was going to say, Elena, you had to... You didn't have to, but we dragged Brett in just, you know, it's always good to have Brett on the show, so why not? <laughs> <laughs> hey, guys, I can fully admit that I am probably the, the least expert in the room right now, so oh, uh, I'm glad to be here. It's good to hear from you guys. Well, we appreciate you joining us as well. We know it's, you know, it's after hours in the work world, and it just goes to prove how much these wild turkeys mean to you guys and mean to us as well. And, you know, we we do greatly appreciate what you guys do on the, quote, nine to five, but also the extra things that you do, like come on and share information with us. So thank you guys. Thank you both. So 
the I guess thing I saw that kind of spurred this on is I saw an article online called Seek the Road Less Traveled, and it references a study that I believe, Elena, you you headed up this study, and you studied the movement and mannerisms of turkey hunters, not turkeys, but hunters, which is very interesting to me. So could you kind of tell me, did you come up with that idea, or did somebody you know, tell you to do that? How did, how did that go? Oh, I wish I was that creative. Um, that, that would be Brett's brainchild. And I was just fortunate enough to come in on the last two years of that five-year study. And there was an amazing foundation laid for me already with data and protocol and things like that to get this research completed. Yeah, we were able to talk turkey hunters into taking a GPS unit with them. And over those five years, we got about 1,500 hunter days worth of information, which was really super Wow. 1,500. That's a, that's a pretty good sample size. I'd say you're, you should be able to make some inferences from that, I would think. Yeah, absolutely. And I was always so surprised with how willing turkey hunters were to take the unit. It, like I said, I, we were a couple years into the study by the time I stepped into the program, but people were really friendly. And I feel like in my job now where I deal with a lot of different user groups, turkey hunters to me are always, they've always been the best. <laughs> oh, good. That's good to hear. I, I think so too. I would have probably said no because I would think you were just trying to steal my spot. <laughs> yeah, we so we kind of had to, you know, pe- uh, bring people through a little bit of a therapy session before we gave them the GPS <laughs> unit. But once once we explained it was all anonymous, then they were they were pretty agreeable. Oh, yeah, that's pretty good. So the unit itself is it pretty small where it could just go in a pocket, or how did how did y'all actually how does that get carried? Yeah, they were just a small little unit. I'm trying to think of what a good size comparison would be, like maybe a like a box of Tic Tacs, maybe even a oh, little okay. bit smaller. And um, it was a unit that basically just had an on and off button, which was good because we never really had to worry about people walking off with them. It wasn't like it was a nice Garmin that you could use to navigate or anything like that. So they worked out perfect. Yeah. How many of them and were so, lost? Ooh, good question. Oh, that's a, that's a good question. I mean, I know we had to replace a couple over the two years I was there, but... We'd have people walk off with them on accident, and then I could just call them and they'd bring them back. We did not have a lot that were lost, actually. Yeah, that's kind yeah, of surprising. Cameron Cameron loses his boots bits. when he's out, so. Yeah. <laughs> I lose everything, but that's that's pretty cool. And this study was on public land in South Carolina. Is that correct? Correct. Yep, it was yep. on the Web Wildlife Management Area. Okay, and it was... All five years were conducted on the same. That's a whole complex, isn't it? Like three different WMAs? Yeah, correct. It's um, right on the border of Georgia and South Carolina on the Spanner River. And the whole complex, is, I think, is about 26,000 acres. Wow. Okay. And so when, I don't know, I, I, I guess let's just get right into it. What, what were some of the interesting finds, in your opinion, from this study uh, about turkey hunters? and how we act, because I'm kind of going to compare this to how I act and see if you nail me now. Sure. So for this study, at least, I would say that most hunters were very similar in their habits. There wasn't a lot of people who were doing a lot of crazy different things. Most hunters were um, very, very used to using roads, and that was something that they stuck to pretty tight. 
Uh, part of that, I think, was because Webb had a really extensive road and trail network. So there were primary roads where you could drive your truck, and then there were secondary roads that were maintained as fire breaks or trails where you could walk on. And some of that country was so thick that I think using those trails was the most efficient for hunters. And we've seen that, I mean, very clearly in the study. It was rare that hunters went more than just a couple hundred meters off the road. Oh, man, you're talking meters. How, how many yards is in a meter? I guess it's pretty close. I don't know. Maybe, Brett, you're the scientist. You could give us the measurement. About a couple hundred yards. Okay. So pretty much the same. I got gotcha. you. Yeah, that's pretty yeah. <laughs> we'll, we'll be We'll be all right. We won't, we won't overly math tonight. So Right. Okay. Perfect. So a major inference was turkey hunters like to walk nicely made trails and roads for them. Yep. That was one of the the big takeaways and then I would say probably one of the most important things that we found as well was that most hunting activity and that sort of season structure was very focused on the front end of the season so we basically found in the month-long season that about 75 percent of all hunting activity occurred in the first two weeks so when it's wide open like that they really get out there and I mean they there's boots on the ground for two weeks steady wow okay and so would y'all just set up like in the mornings at a gate where people were coming through and, and get them that way? How, how would y'all contact the hunters to actually get these GPSs in pockets? At this WMA, the access is pretty much restricted to a couple of main openings. And then there's hunter sign-in stations where they have to fill out a card and sign in. They have to get a little placard for their, their mirror inside their truck to show that they've signed in. So basically when they went to do that, we would just kind of ambush them and be as friendly as we could and try and talk them into taking a GPS unit. <laughs> I might I might dress up like a scientist, you know, oh, next yeah. year and do that. My do mind that. is running <laughs> wild right now. No, I'd say you got to dress like a turkey hunter. That's what got me. That's what got people to believe me, I think, was that I looked like them. <laughs> oh, <laughs> and wow. they ask about how their hunt's been going, and then they're, then they're really going to be into it. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's awesome. So y'all get them in the mornings. How long did your average turkey hunter spend hunting and could you hunt all day in South Carolina? Is it an all day hunt? There's no noon cutoff or anything? Correct. You could hunt all day, but most hunting activity was within the first three or four hours of the morning, a large majority of it. But I will say one personal thing too, my, the, one of the best things about grad school and field work was that after I handed out my last GPS unit of the day, I could go out and hunt for a couple hours before I started working. So that was always really cool too. Yeah. Did you did you track yourself? I did. Yes, I always did. That's cool. That's very cool. Yeah. So you you are a turkey hunter as well. I, I like when turkey hunters are also the people studying turkeys and working in turkey, you know, legislature. Oh, whoa, whoa, whoa. Hang on a second, guys. I, I don't think that we've given Elena her due credit here. Okay. Oh yeah. She is not just a turkey hunter. She is a hunter. Period. Nice. And and I, and I want I want you guys to be clear. She's just not the student that happened to chase turkeys because she likes chase. You know, she happened to be working on turkeys. She hunts deer and waterfowl and bears and mountain lions and all kinds of stuff. So wow. so I, I don't want you to pigeonhole her as just being a turkey hunter here. She is a, a enjoyer of the sport. So that's awesome. 
Uh, Alina, did you grow up hunting? I did, yeah. That was what gave me this passion for wildlife management. I, I grew up doing a lot of archery hunting for deer. Spring turkey was really huge. And then now in the last few years, I've actually been getting into hound hunting a lot up here in northern Wisconsin. So I'm really blessed right now to have such a great job where I can get out and do that stuff all the time. That's pretty cool. With the, the hounds, are you hunting hounds or are you hunting cats with the hounds? <laughs> We have, we hunt bobcats and coyotes in the winter, and then it's mostly bear in the summertime. Okay, so you're not you're not hunting the hounds. I like that. Hunting over the hounds, I should say. <laughs> <laughs> all right, Cameron, quit acting like me now. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. All right, all right. So when these hunters would take the unit with them, I know the study primarily was to study them and how how they hunted. But when they turned the unit in, was there some sort of a report that they had to give about gobbling activity or turkey seen, that type of thing? Uh, No, that wasn't a requirement of the study. There were hunter check-in cards where they would, I I can't honestly recall if they had to talk about how the hunt was, but no, that wasn't, that wasn't gathered as part of this. Okay. Yeah. So there wasn't like a deep- and the the reason behind that, you know, Andy Cameron, one of the benefits of working with the hunting community is that they're always really engaged and interested in the science. But one of the downfalls is, is that hunters, as a general rule, we're kind of closed mouths whenever yeah. we find a good spot. And we made a executive decision, you know, early on in this project, which was, you know, in conjunction with the South Carolina Department of Natural Resources. And Jay Cantrell at the time, and Charles was managing the Web Center, and then Charles Ruth is the, the deer and turkey you know program leader there in South Carolina, and now April Atkinson is in charge of, of the Web Center. But we all decided early on that it would be better, while the information would obviously be interesting, not to ask hunters to report back what they were hearing and seeing because we didn't want to run into any issues with the hunters not being willing to just carry an, an anonymous GPS unit, because then we'd have to tie data about oh, yeah. what they heard and what they saw with where to they were unit. at spatially. Yeah. Right. And, and then people might be a little bit less willing to carry the units. Exactly. That makes, that makes yeah. perfectly good sense. Yeah. I had... One thing I would add to that too, is we also had sound recording units located all across the three units of the web as well and we were collecting real-time data on gobbling activity too so we kind of already had that piece of information that i think is probably more accurate than what you would hear from a hunter anyways we don't lie (laughs) (laughs) i do (laughs) yeah i I watched andy lie to a a 10 year old kid straight to his face while a turkey had just gobbled about 10 minutes prior over our shoulder that's hearsay (laughs) It was, and I mean, he didn't even break. I, I about believed him, and I'd heard the turkey gobble. <laughs> but so, one thing I've wondered, because there's kind of two schools of hunters, turkey hunters, in my opinion. Some people believe you go out, you sit down in one spot, and you call, and you sit there and turkey hunt from that location. And then there's the other group, run and gun. They just run ridges, call until they hit a hot bird, kind of thing. Was there any data showing a majority of hunters were, you know, pick a spot and call type people or were most of them running and gunning per se? I know we definitely seen both types for sure. Just like you said, there was people who 
moved a lot and people who stayed in one spot. I, I don't know that we could have picked out which there was more of. I know that on average, because things kind of averaged out, um, hunters had about two different bouts of hunting activity in a day where basically they changed spots at least once. Um, and I think one takeaway that we can take somewhat related to this is that people who walked farther may have been more successful in seeing and hearing oh. birds. We can't say that definitively, but it just, most people didn't go very far. So I guess my advice would be go farther, walk farther. Yeah. We're... How many birds were harvested out of those 1500 man days? Do you know? I don't know that date off the top of my head. I don't know if you do, Brett. The the harvest out there on the web complexes is pretty consistent every year, but I don't know the exact number on how many birds that get harvested. Um, okay. But but I know that it's it's fairly constant, and it's probably important to also realize that we probably didn't tag every hunter that accessed the web center. Yeah. Right. So so there are people that. I mean, I know for a fact there are people that harvested birds out there that didn't take GPS units. You know, I got a very nice email from, a, I think it was a high school kid who, who lives in the nearby area that harvested a bird out there. Told me he didn't want anybody to know where his spot was, that you know, that, but uh, he wanted to show me a picture of the bird that he had harvested. So, yeah, um, you know, so I, I don't remember. <laughs> Elena, do you remember the number? I mean, I want to say it was around like 35, 37% we estimated took a GPS unit. So like one every three, is that about right? Yeah, I think it might have even been a little bit higher than that, maybe even towards like 50%, something like that. But okay. there definitely were people who would get there, I mean, at midnight, one, two in the morning and sleep in their trucks. And we couldn't keep up with those folks. And, but, and you know, a couple of grumpy people who didn't want to take them too. But it was pretty good, I felt, for participation. Yeah. Was the, so you said people who walked further, you would say not, you can't say definitively, but you were, you're able to infer most likely killed more turkeys or heard more. Yes. And or, right. Or I, I, like I said, we didn't, we didn't tie success into this because we didn't ask hunters whether yeah. they harvested a bird or but, not. But exactly. in my, what Brett had alluded to earlier in the second chapter of the thesis, we actually seen what turkeys were doing at the same time. And um, it, it led us to believe that turkeys were moving a lot farther away from roads because there was that huge influx in foot and road traffic once mm. hunting season began. Yeah, so uh, let's get into that some so we can kind of bounce back and forth with the, the second part of this thesis. The turkeys, did y'all have just gobblers with GPS transmitters on them or also hens? We had both. Okay. So I've always wondered this. Do the gobblers respond differently than the hens to people? You know, yes. I can't. Brett says yes. <laughs> okay. Yes. Do you want to take it, that one, Brett? <laughs> Yeah, I'm glad. I know I'm glad too. Uh, so, and this is something that Elena and myself ha have been, you know, just working on and finalizing. But so, even though, so everybody knows that males are targeted during the spring hunting season, right? I mean, that's yeah. there, but some females are available. So, when you think about how a bird, a turkey views the landscape, it's a question of risk, right? It's it's how risky is it for me to be over here versus over there what we see with with her work which has had a bunch of gps tagged turkeys both male and female at the exact collecting date at the exact same time the hunters were out there is that there's an a, there's a an acute or an immediate response by everybody right both male both both males and females right 
all of a sudden there's this massive influx of humans into their environment, yeah. right? Opening day, you know, open day of turkey season, everybody's in the woods, right? Yeah. Well, so you see this, this real quick, real early, immediate kind of peak where, oh, my goodness, there's people everywhere. We need to move faster, and we need to get away, right? Mm-hmm. But then the females, they level out because they're not at risk. Mm-hmm. Most female, and, and I understand. I understand that females could be harvested. Okay, you know, most most states. I don't. I don't know the exact number. I want to say it's somewhere between thirty-eight and forty-two. But most states have some regulation where females can be shot in spring if they're bearded. Um, yeah. You know, uh, the the bearded hidden thing. Um, but we still don't target them per se. Females yeah. weren't at risk, and and they just kind of leveled out, and you know, didn't really have any change in how they selected where to be on the management area over the course of the spring hunting season. Males, on the other hand, continually moved away from where roads were, secondary, primary roads or secondary, and just basically tried to get away from hunters. And, and the effect is, I don't want to say striking, but it, it's biologically pretty large. I want to say that it's about 60%. So males moved farther away from those kind of footpaths. They used them 62% less as the course of the season progressed. So basically wow. they, they completely moved away from where the hunters were does, is the take home, does this, the brief take home from that. I don't know anything about the WMA. Does it have like food plots planted on it? It does. Yes. What was the, did they begin to avoid food plots? Most likely because almost all food plots were at the end of a trailer road. Yeah. Um, well, that was also maintained. So probably yes. <laughs> okay. Very interesting. So the hens you're saying early, but then they, they normalize, whereas the gobblers realize, you know, they're after me and <laughs> I'm going to keep getting out of here. <laughs> yeah. And that's a good way to look at it. Right. Um, the, the females are, you know, they're not really doing anything at this time. They're, they're getting bred, maybe maybe looking for places, you know, getting ready to nest, that kind of thing. But they're not at risk from all of these hunters. And But males certainly show that there is and, – and you can't think about this as an individual. You have to think about this as all birds that exist, okay? Yeah. In general, all birds that existed on the WMA on the first day of hunting season were really far away from the, the various roads that Elena's hunter GPS showed that the hunters used by the end of the hunting season. They did not want to be anywhere near where hunters were. That, that's, the, that's the kind of take home, you know, for the second chapter of yeah. her thesis. Hmm. That is, that's fascinating. So were there any other inferences made from the birds themselves once hunters entered the woods other than they began avoiding roads and and distancing themselves from roads? The only thing thing we really found that was, go ahead, Elena, please go ahead. No, you go ahead. I I refuse. Talk. Okay. <laughs> One thing I would just say, like, which Brett hinted on already, but tur- turkeys have a habit of being very individualistic, where one turkey will have a drastically different response than the next one. And so this research kind of relies on five years of data and males and females and averages it all out to what the average turkey would do. But there were some males, I remember when I was tracking that 
they'd stay hunkered down in one spot that might be close to a road, but they would just sit there and hunker down throughout the whole of hunting season. So there were anomalies like that as well. And then, then there were some birds who once hunting season started would move miles off of the WMA and just completely leave town. So I think that was an important takeaway from it as well as that every turkey is different, but the average turkey was very much influenced by that pressure. Very interesting. Brett, Brett did yeah, you have you said it really good right there. <laughs> So the birds that moved miles or moved off of the WMA, you had collars on or tracking devices on well before season, I'm assuming, and they had been camped out on the WMA before season and acted like they weren't going anywhere. So it's safe to assume that they moved off of the WMA because of pressure and not because of a change of the season or food source. Is that well, safe assumption? It's never safe to assume in science, okay. <laughs> as Brett, I'm sure, probably told me, <laughs> because we can't say for sure. It could have been, I don't know, an interaction with a different predator or something, but I, I would like to believe that that's, yes, probably what happened for that individual bird. Okay. So the birds that headed for the hills totally left the WMA. When season ended in May, did any of them come back? Yeah, the one the one that I'm specifically thinking about, he did. He did eventually come back after the season. And like Brett said with the females, and once you average it all out, that hunting pressure dropped off so much after the second week. There were so many fewer people out there that they did start to come, come back to their, their normal habits at the end of the season. Wow, so they were back normalizing even during hunting season, just late season. Right. That's extremely interesting, interesting to me. Yeah, so so there is an opportunity there for, for a late season hunt where you might be hunting a turkey who wasn't on that WMA all season. <laughs> yeah, I yeah. personally, I hunted my uh, both years that I, I was there and I shot my one and only turkey on the last day of season in the last hour of hunting hours there. That was when I got that bird. And yeah, so I think there's definitely good opportunities late season. Did you use any GPS data to find turkeys while hunting? <laughs> I did not. Brett told me I would be fired <laughs> if I did that. <laughs> we we have, no, and, and she's so exactly tempting. right. We have a standing rule. We have a standing rule. You cannot use any of the scientific information that we collect to help you harvest a bird i will fire you uh, because, because that, that is put, one hour that puts one. the science yep that puts the science and our ethics as scientists at risk ethics and turkey so, hunting right. and what's so, the public going to think right and the and the so the pressure was so much higher that you know it's hard enough to be in a turkey hunt but then you're like you're just stressing so much it doesn't have a backpack on it. Like, oh, you're second-guessing yeah. yourself 500 <laughs> times before you pull the trigger because yeah. you've got to make sure it doesn't have a backpack on it. <laughs> I'll, tell, I'll tell you guys a story. So I get a phone call. So we were a couple years into this project, and, and I get a phone call from an, an unnamed biologist with South Carolina DNR, who I'm sure will listen to this podcast. And said biologist calls me and informs me that they – they went hunting with a friend and somehow they miraculously harvested two of our tagged birds Dang. <laughs> and said by said biologist was both excited and a little bit nervous on my response because both the said birds had moved off the wma were on a piece of private property that they were hunting on 
And it was just, it was totally happenstance. They had no idea where the birds were at, but you know, so, but it does, it, this question does come up pretty regularly guys. And I don't want to make too much light of it, but we do have to be sure. And Elena did a great job as do all of the grad students on all these projects that, that we have to keep separate the science that we're doing and the recreation that we enjoy, because there would be nothing worse for us professionally than one of our constituents, the hunters and the hunting community, to think that we were using the information we were collecting to do nothing more than increase our chances for success. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I mean, what would be the fun in hunting down a tracked bird and shoot it, you know? Right. Yes. Yes. And and we all answer, Elena and, yeah, Elena and I both, both answer to our, our, our state agency constituency. You know, they answer, we answer to the hunters in our states and we would never want to take that for granted. At least, you know, I, I think I'm speaking for her on that is that, you know, our relationship with them is paramount. So we can't, we cannot do anything that jeopardizes our integrity on that. So um, I will say this, a lot of people, and maybe Elena can speak to this. A lot of people get really excited when they harvest a tagged bird, though. I bet. Oh, yeah, for sure. I've had guys who they're like, can I please have it back or can I have an old one? And we'll try and get an old one for him or one that's broken. And I I heard of a guy who had a full mount with one of the backpacks on. I never got to see it. But, yeah, people get really excited. They think, well, this is an even more wary bird because it's been handled before. And I think that's fair. That's an interesting thought, too, that the bird's been captured before. So he may be even more skeptical than most. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, I don't know how, how long their memory is necessarily, but I, I definitely think it's it's something I'd brag about. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I've seen I've seen birds that have walked up to nets and been like, No, I'm not going back under that. <laughs> yeah. I went under it once. I now have jewelry, I'm not getting near it. So <laughs> Yeah. But they're individuals. So Yeah. What were there any turkeys or hunters that were just like total outliers i don't know i'm just like imagining some grizzled old guy that he, he walked like 40 miles in a day and never touched a road you know was there any any like major outliers in the study that were interesting to you yeah absolutely i mean with a sample size this large it's for sure there were definitely people who were really working their butts off um there was a few people who would actually put their boats in on the savannah river and then they'd hike up from the south from the southern part of the property and i feel like those people probably did good because they were coming in from access points that not a lot of people were using. And yeah, certainly lots of people walked a ton of miles and some people hunted for 10 minutes. So it was all over the board. Yeah. What was the percentage of, uh, did you know the residency status of those you tracked? Did you know if they were South Carolina residents or you just, you didn't care? Yeah, we didn't collect that information, but I would say just from standing out at those check stations for a couple of years, I'd say most people were local. It was pretty rare to have somebody from out of state. Um, yeah. It did happen once in a while, but it wasn't a ton. Yeah, maybe some Georgia folks just barely crossing the line. Yeah, definitely people from Georgia. That was like a five-minute drive. Yeah. This is interesting stuff. So I, I would be the person that you gave a tracking device to who would walk about, oh, 50 yards down a trail, step off the side of the trail, would be at that spot for about an hour and a half, and then you'd see him go back to his truck. And that would be me just going in to take a nap. <laughs> <laughs> That's pretty typical. <laughs> yeah. 
I did, could I could tell when people were taking naps in the truck. Oh, <laughs> uh, that's pretty good. Along that same line, what percentage of the hunters that took devices, and we know what percentage of hunters took devices, at least somewhat, but of the hunters that took the devices with them, what percentage of them would you say were running and gunning versus just going and sitting in blind calling or sitting in a blind and calling? Well, you're asking me to remember data from several years ago, and Brett, you might be able to jump in, but I think I recall that hunters were actively moving I want to say it was like close to 50-50, like actively walking 50% of the time and sitting 50% of the time. But I don't know that I ever did any kind of analysis looking at like people who were always consistently moving um, or always sitting. It kind of just got thrown into a big pot and we made again like this average hunter profile. So one thing I've always wondered, and I don't know if this particular study saw this, but how often did hunters move and then a turkey show up at their location? Um, I guess I don't know that I know the answer to that. You're asking how often they would see a turkey after they moved? No, I guess, like, so say a guy set up and you could tell he sat for a while and called for two hours, you know, whatever, sat in one spot for an hour, and then he got up and moves two miles down a ridge or whatever. Was there many times where after he left the area turkeys came to where his calling location had been oh i understand sure so i never got a chance to look at that just trying to parse out these 1500 hunter days was oh, wow. enough work that could have lasted me yeah. for five more years <laughs> so i would have loved to look at that but i think it would be difficult but i think it's something that we could do down the road we have all the data oh that's cool it do- and guys it does happen um, we've got some, not a lot, okay, but on some of the sites um, where we've been working with birds where we we know we've got GPS birds and we've done some experimental hunts in these places, hunters would go and, and we'd be like, there are birds over there. We want you to go try and work those birds just to see like minute by minute how the birds responded. Some of these birds will, you know, get shot. But some of these birds will drop off the roost, go a mile in the other direction, and then come back to that spot in the afternoon and check out what was going on. Wow. So not a, not a huge sample because it's, it's not, you know, like that, that individual one-on-one relationship doesn't add a ton to our biological knowledge. But we, we have got some data where we have done these experimental hunts on known birds and we have seen birds circle back around to where a hunter was at three hours later, four hours later, later that afternoon from a morning hunt. So it does happen, certainly. Two two things from that. If you ever need a volunteer to go after a known <laughs> bird, Cameron Weddington, you have my number. <laughs> the, list, the list of people volunteering for that, Cameron, is long and distinguished. <laughs> <laughs> Which means you're at the very bottom. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I'm... I'm I'm at the bottom and very undistinguished. (laughs) If I was you, Elena, the other thing I was going to say, I wouldn't be able to stand. I'd have to look back and see if that had happened to me. You know, like, was did that turkey I called to for three hours? Did he actually show up any time after I finally left him? Yeah, no kidding. You know, since you tracked yourself. Yeah, we made a couple of maps, and Elena might be able to speak to this. I think she made them, and then I think Patrick, who was the – the master's student on the project before Elena, who's now doing a 
a PhD with uh, Mike Chamberlain there at UGA, um, had also done this. We had a couple of hunters that harvested, that carry GPS units, that harvested GPS tag birds. And we made some some simple maps showing them their movements and the birds' movements that day that they happened to get fortunate enough to harvest one. Wow. And um, just to kind of, you know, kind of look and see where the bird was at when it started. And, and a lot of times, regretfully, the, the bird GPSs aren't collecting on a minute-by-minute level. So it's it's apparent that they roosted the bird, the bird came down, moved around for 20 minutes, and they shot the bird, right? Um, yeah. But we had a few that, you know, she hunted in the afternoon and, you know, actually say I saw a full day of the bird's movements before it got harvested. So I can remember, I think, one or two of those. Can you remember any of those, Elena? I was not fortunate enough to do that. The the folks who shot tag birds on in my two years, all the tags were already dead. Okay. What, what so, percentage of hunters yeah. actually hunted the afternoon? Do you know, like, out of, if you had to put a number to it, would you say most people hunted all day, you know, morning and afternoon? Or was it very few in the afternoons? Very few in the afternoon. It was very heavily skewed towards towards the morning. Um, by, by 10 a.m., I, I, I want to say, I know I have the, the numbers in my thesis, but it was like 75 or 80 percent of hunting activity was completed. Wow. And then you know, probably some more drop off at 11, 12, and not many in the afternoon. So yeah. as far as turkey activity in the afternoon, were turkeys pretty active in the afternoons as far as moving around? Um, Yeah. I mean, they, they lope during the day and, and especially during hunting season, I think movements are probably even more restricted than normal. But like I said, the one turkey that I did harvest was in the afternoon and he was out on the prowl. So I think that there's definitely opportunities there, but I I think turkey hunting satisfaction, I know in Wisconsin, right in our survey, we found that gobbling activity and being able to work a gobbling bird is like the number one satisfaction factor that hunters are looking for. So if you can't work with them when they're gobbling, I think the interest level goes down a lot for a lot of people. Yeah, that makes sense. And yeah, and it's just to build on that, so some of the other research that, that I was doing with other graduate students on the web center at the same time was looking at the gobbling chronology. So when birds were gobbling in, the, you know, what time of day, how, when they were most intensively gobbling. And, and that was Patrick's actual thesis, not to get off topic here, but, but basically the first about 120 to 150 minutes of the day is when almost all gobbling activity occurs Mm -hmm. and then it just drops off precipitously so the so basically what elena just said with you know hunter satisfaction is driven and it is for all of us right we all want to go out and hear birds gobbling while we're hunting them i mean that's that's why we hunt them during their reproductive season yeah because that's when they're making noise um, so it makes sense that the amount of hunters on the landscape and hunter effort would de- decline as gobbling activity declines over the, the daily cycle, right? Yeah. Um, because birds aren't making any noise, then it's just, am I going to get lucky and have one walk out in front of me? It's more like deer hunting at that point. Yeah, that is that is true and, and interesting. I was, I was curious about the afternoon deal. Andy, you have anything else you'd like to ask Elena or Brett? Yeah. It may it may sound pretty crazy. Of course, it's coming out of my mouth. There is no such thing. Don't worry. It's coming about out it. of my mouth. It <laughs> is crazy. And and the answer may be we just don't have enough data on it. But 
or you may not have been able to piece together the data on it. So when the gobbling activity slows down, just say a couple of hours after daylight, is did you notice any greater or lesser movement out of the gobblers during that quiet time of the day? Were they on the prowl more or were they with hens, do you think? I'm going to let you take that one, Brett. You want me to do this one? So generally speaking, what happens, you know, behaviorally for a turkey, you know, globally here is, you know, they gobble in the tree, let everybody know where they're at. They hit the ground, they show off for a little bit. And then typically during the, the hunting season that we're talking about, they're most likely to be traveling with the group of females that they are hanging out with. If they're breeding or they're running with the group of males that they've been running with, but these male groups, Andy, don't, they don't like rebuild themselves. Okay. So, you know, if, if I was running around with four guys in, you know, 2020 and one of them gets shot, there's three of us in 2021. Mm -hmm. And then if one of us gets shot, there's two of us in 2022. Like they, they don't like rebuild. Um, so they're really just kind of, I don't want to, you know, turkeys loaf and peck and feed all day long. Yeah. You know, they're on the prowl, so to speak. So I don't want to pigeonhole them into saying that they're doing A or they're doing B. But, but what I can tell you is that once they get on the ground and they finish doing whatever business they've got that morning, they don't do a whole bunch else. And, and I think that I want to go back to something that you said earlier, and I and Elena actually mentioned as well, is that there are some birds that just don't move and they don't die. Mm-hmm. And we've seen evidence of that on the web. Um, as, as Elena mentioned, they, they hang out right where hunters hunt. And we've seen some evidence. There's a, a guy named John Gross who did some work in Louisiana with Mike Chamberlain um, years back on a Tunic Hills WMA, looking at how um, turkey hunters and turkeys responded and there are some birds that just, I mean, go silent, go deep type of thing, right? You know, they don't make any noise and they stay in their little, you know, hundred acre area and they don't do anything. So there's the extremes of that versus the bird that ran, you know, what was it? Eight miles, Elena? Is that right? Off the of WMA? Yep. Six miles. Six Yep. Six miles. So I don't want to exaggerate. I mean, I'm a faculty member. We got to be honest. Here. Um, you know, that, that went that went six miles off the WMA. So you can have somebody that stays within a hundred acre plot the entire hunting season, and then somebody who kicks off the next day. And the problem with science is that we always talk about the averages when, in truth, the extremes are probably where most of the action is. Does that make sense? You know, you yeah. have a bunch of individuals that don't move, and a bunch of individuals that move a lot. Uh, a lot the averages they all move a little yeah. bit you know so yeah there's evidence for how for these birds actually being on the prowl but it's re- it really comes back to what elena said earlier there's so much individualism within each bird that i don't think i've said this before i don't think there's such thing as an average yeah, yeah. so the toms the gobblers did who didn't move, who may have stayed within that 100-acre area, if you've got one in mind, that's great. If you've got five in mind, that's even better. Were there any song boxes around that may have picked up on whether those birds were gobbling or not gobbling? 
you know, we can't be that specific. Yeah, Yeah. no, sorry, Elena. Yeah, it is. It's a great question. We can't be that specific. Okay, right now. But but some of the tags that we have used or are starting to use on the turkeys um, have a little mechanism in there that allow basically I don't even know how to really explain it. Basically, it uh, it measures kind of how much the tag shaking is kind of a way to look at it, right? It measures kind of vibration. Okay, and we think and don't quote you know like long term. We think we can tie that um, that activity to what a gobble looks like, mm-hmm. and then if we've got these individuals that don't move at all, we can go back and look at their information on their tag and see if their rate of gobbling, of being loud or auditory, is less than those that move a lot, or vice versa, right? Yeah. And and I'm stupidly forget. You guys know when you forget a word. I'm stupidly forgetting the word for it, and I'll, I'll try and find out because it's. Re- I'm feeling really stupid right now. So that's cool, though. I had never thought of that, and that's that's really neat technology. That's exciting. I'm trying to think of what it's called. There, and, you know. I got the gist of what you were saying. I don't care about the word. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, 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 but now yeah. I do. The 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 science guy in me is like, yeah. oh man. Well, um, so I need to, I need to figure out what the it's hey, called. <laughs> I do that with my address on a daily basis or my phone number, so don't worry about it. It's all good. All right, well, I'll let you guys talk to Elena for a minute while I snoop into my email and try and figure it out. Okay. So, Elena, was there tracking the hens when nesting? Did hens? I don't know if you were able to tell this from this particular study. Did hens tend to nest away from? where most of the pressure was, i.e. away from roads? Um, well, like we've been saying all night, every hen was very individualistic, but I would say that most nests were not extremely close to the road, but it did vary. Okay. Because I've heard, you know, there's a lot of speculation that hunters spooking hens off the nest may be impacting turkey production. So I, I was wondering if hens were nesting near roads if you had noticed if people were spooking them often or if it seemed to not be as much of a problem i I assume because you said hunting falls off so much later it wasn't this big issue yeah that's that's a good question and that's something that if again if i would have had more time that would have been a really cool thing to look into but i i can't honestly say at this point whether that was happening a lot um my gut instinct is that it didn't happen a ton and um, I didn't have a ton of abandoned nests. I wasn't fortunate enough to, to track too, too many. I think I had like 30 over the two years that I tracked and there weren't that many that were abandoned. Um, there was a lot that were predated, but there weren't many that were just flat out abandoned. So, um, my gut tells me no, not at least in the two years I was there, but, uh, Brad, I don't know if you have any other studies that looked at that specifically or not. Yeah, we have. And, and, you know, um, the answer is broadly no. Most hunters could walk by a turkey nest and not know it was there mm-hmm. because of just how the hens are, are hidden. Um, we, yeah. I, I can't – I mean, I'm sure it occurs occasionally, but on, on a, a population-level impact scale, the answer is no. So um, – and, you know, you know, some of the evidence on turkeys being near roads and, and nesting near roads is predominantly driven by the fact that um, – areas around roads typically get managed right 
Mm-hmm. That's where fires get started from. Yeah. And trim brush at and all that stuff. So, so there's good vegetative communities there that are what turkeys generally select a nest in. And then there's considerable evidence of that, uh, you know, in the literature and, and what we see in the field as well. So, um, and I, and I looked up that term, it's called an accelerometer. I was brain farting oh, on it. Wow. I apologize. But <laughs> what it does is wow. it, it basically allows you to measure the, the, the organism, turkey in this case is activity. And we, we think that, and I'm not doing this project, Mike Chamberlain at UGA is doing this work. Um, but we, he thinks that you can actually with, with pinned birds, because they've done tests, identify what a gobble looks like on an accelerometer and then translate that to what a bird in the field carrying an accelerometer looks like when it's gobbling. That's and then you, really cool data. Go ahead. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And then, then it becomes a question of, you know, the age-old question, do louder birds die faster, you know, because they're, huh. they're being loud. I they're being so. uh, yeah. Maybe. I mean, it only takes one gobble for you to figure out where something's at, right? If you're in the right place, <laughs> so many gobbles, it's really, really. Exactly. Yeah. So it's really cool technology um, that's just kind of getting brought online for an animal the size of a turkey that still has to be able to fly. Oh, yeah. Yeah. That's... Elena, as a turkey hunter and a hunter of all game species, but turkey specifically, what would you say as a hunter your top three takeaways from this study would be that you um, could use as a hunter? Number one would be just like the title of Brett's article, Seek the the Roads Less Traveled. So go farther off the road, especially if you're on a WMA like this where the gobbling kind of drops off after people have been hitting it pretty hard. Don't be afraid to go somewhere, even if you're not hearing a gobbler necessarily. Don't be afraid to look for those spots that might be good. Go farther off the road. Um, My second tip would probably be to hunt in the afternoon because I think that it's highly underrated. Um, I, I do get that it's not as fun when they're not gobbling back to you, but again, like on a WMA like this, where there's a lot less gobbling to begin with, uh, once the season gets underway, I think that those afternoon hunts can be very lucrative. Um, I felt like I had more success actually seeing birds in the afternoon than I did in the morning, even though I'd obviously hear a lot more gobbling in the morning. And then my third tip would be don't be afraid to hunt the late season as well. Um, Even if you think it's not going to be as good or you think the gobbling has stopped, it might be a little different. You might have to be a little different with your tactics, but I think it's important to hunt the late season as well. All of that's getting cut out of the Very cool. Brett? (laughs) (laughs) I'm so proud of her. I mean, look at her just laying it out there, right? I found this, and here's what you all need to do. Hunt in the afternoon hunt late in the year and avoid people i mean seriously what a what a great message for all of us right now yeah yeah, yeah. brett did, did you learn anything because you're a turkey hunter too oh yeah no i mean you guys know me every day i learned something that i didn't know um you know what i what i learned most from this study is that the intelligence and the integrity of uh, the graduate student that you put on a project is what makes a project successful. And I am extremely fortunate to have had the opportunity to, to have worked with Elena on this work. And, and it would not have worked as well if it hadn't have been for her and, and all of her time and effort. And, you know, I'm, I'm really just kind of the, the cog in the wheel that makes sure that the bills get paid and that the paperwork gets pushed through and that, that 
you know, none of this would have been possible if it wasn't for all of her efforts. So I'm just uh, fortunate and lucky that I was able to, to, you know, convince her to, to come down and, and do graduate research with me. And, and this is where we ended up. So that's awesome. Okay. It's, it's my turn now. So I have to say that, <laughs> that most of that's not true, <laughs> but it's very, oh, very come on. flattering. But I would say, I, Brett, I am so indebted to you and what you have taught me. And I look back at where I was when I started grad school and how arrogant and ignorant I was. And I have grown so much as a person from that experience. And it still is, I'm still reaping the benefits from it now. And I'm just so thankful for you. And Brett pushed me so hard and gave me such a strong work ethic out of that experience. So thank you. Thank you very much for letting me be your grad student. No, you're welcome. Do you want to tell them how you became my grad student? That's a great story. Please. Mike, turn me down. Do you down. remember? <laughs> yeah, do you remember? Yeah. Yeah, oh, I remember. Yeah, Mike turned me down and, and uh, punted me over to Brett, and I said, will you please take me? <laughs> and he said, okay. <laughs> no, she, no, no. So Mike had had a graduate position available. Elena had applied for. Um, and and she just, un, you know, fortunately for me, was was not, the one that he had the graduate student he chose i don't remember who it was i want to say was it ashley no yeah yeah i remember who so. it was was it ashley Lore? yeah so another graduate student mike's and she's great right um so i'm on the phone with mike driving through mississippi or somewhere and i say hey i just got this project extended and i need a graduate student he's like i got a name for you she was my number two and she's awesome call her so I called her from the road, if I remember right, correct? Yep. And and we we talked on the road uh, about what she wanted to do, and then I got back to LSU and brought her on board, and it's been you know just great ever since. So that's awesome. And, and look at her that's now; awesome. she's you know managing. She's the wildlife biologist for a for you know a, a county in Wisconsin, and is doing podcasts and outreach, and you know all, <laughs> all kinds of. This, I mean, this is what. This is what a faculty member wants, right? You guys should literally have all of the Turkey graduate students on to talk about their science because every single bit of it is the stuff you get from Mike and I. We're not the ones doing it. Yeah, these are the ones that are. Yeah. These kids are the ones that are doing it. Yeah, and we're yeah. we're. Yeah. That's awesome. So the average listener out there doesn't know this. We're very fortunate to have Elena on here because she does work for the state, and it's hard to get someone who works for any state, not just Wisconsin, but any state to come on to this show because they've got to get clearance from not only their higher up, but legal and a lot of different people. And so we're very, very fortunate to have Elena on today. And and I appreciate the time. But I do have, with that said, I do have one more question. All right. (laughs) I want you both to think about not just the web, not just your study that you've got going on now, but think about your entire time that you spent studying wild turkeys and the entire time that you've had these song meters out, the entire time that you've had birds that you've been tracking. Have you noticed that certain areas seem to have toms that gobble more in the afternoon than other areas that you've done research in and spent a significant amount of time in. And I'm not, you know, maybe some of this is, is, and it it may be hard for both of you to disconnect from the scientist in you, but 
maybe some of it's a scientist in you, maybe some it's of it's just observation. But have you noticed certain areas have more afternoon gobbling than other areas? I would say for this one, coming from hunting web, which was hunted so hard, and then coming home to Wisconsin and hunting 150 acres of private land adjacent to agriculture and very, very little hunting pressure, I hear and see so many more birds up here than I did down there. And I think the biggest factor of that is private versus public. But that's just my opinion and my, my experience. Huh. Um, putting science aside, um, I, I would say that especially as you get later in the season, there are places where you are more likely to find males clustering and vocalizing and gobbling. And that's because the later you get in, in the hunting season, generally speaking, the males are in full reproductive mode and they are not only um, breeding females the first time, but also you have initial sets of failed nests that are, uh, where the females are kind of coming back in to get bred again in some cases. So I do, I do think just from a personal level, not obviously spending nearly as much time in the woods as Elena does, um, that that does occur that, that, you know, there are areas on the landscape, especially, especially in areas where you would think a Turkey would nest mm -hmm. that you will find more males in the area because they're out there looking for the females as the, the reproductive season progresses. That's, that's my off the cuff hunter opinion. I'll take it. I yeah. asked for it. I have to take it. Yeah. That's <laughs> <laughs> no choice. Yeah. Well, I could talk about Turkey studies all day with both of you. And I hope Elena will be able to get you back on and maybe talk about what's going on in Wisconsin sometime. Cause I'd like to hear what, what you have going up there with turkeys and, I know Marinette County should be proud to have you. So. Absolutely. And I appreciate well, thank you, you very on. much. Thank you. I appreciate that. And I, I would love to because I can definitely say there's a lot of things that I've taken away from my own research and what my fellow grad students were doing that has helped me a lot up here with turkey management and providing statewide suggestions. And um, there's a lot of important things to talk about and what's going on in Wisconsin right now. So speaking of Wisconsin... Uh I don't know or look it up are acceptable answers, but I have a question about the proposed regulation changes for wild turkeys and cutting out the, what is it, five or six seasons and makes, basically making two seasons and, you know, some of the changes like that. Has that been settled yet or voted in? Do you know? Not not yet. So this is something I'm very passionate about. This is something I've been working on before. So before I was the Marinette County biologist, I was the assistant upland specialist. So statewide turkey management was, was one of my main tasks. Mm -hmm. And um, this boarding freedom bill started out in the Senate and it has been passed through some committees. I don't know all the logistics of how the legislature works, but it, it hasn't gotten to the governor's desk yet. It has passed through a couple of levels of um, Senate approval. But I, the DNR has testified against that change. Um, I've written testimony against it. In Wisconsin, we are so lucky. We have the gold standard for turkey hunting season structure, as, as far as I'm concerned. I am biased. But we have seven zones in the state based on turkey density, hunter density, public land. There's a ton of factors that go into that. And then we have six time periods, and they're each one week. 
And the harvest authorizations that we have for a whole zone are divided equally among those, those six time periods. So we are really able to spread out hunter pressure and hunter harvest really nicely um, across time and space, which is exactly what I, what me and Brett looked at in my research is that hunting pressure is so heavily skewed towards the front end. There's possible biological ramifications for that. Um, so DNR would like to see it say the same. And our hunter surveys show that nearly 70% of hunters want to see it the same. We have very low interference. Um, among hunters, we have very, very few safety accidents. Uh, so it's something that we don't, we as the department do not want to see change right now. Excellent. Excellent perspective. Yeah, yeah. And we, talk, we talked about it a few weeks ago on the show, Cameron and I did. And, you know, on the surface, as an out-of-stater looking at Wisconsin, it's confusing. But once you dig into it, it's really not. And the setup for it all just like you explained, it makes perfectly good sense. To be able to limit that pressure is tremendous. And so anyway, that's my two cents as a hunter who's been to Wisconsin three times so far. And I don't revisit states as a general rule right now because I'm mm-hmm. still, I still have states I haven't killed in. So as a general rule, I don't go back to states. But, you know... I, I went back with Cameron. I went back with my normal hunting buddies. I say normal like mentally normal. That's what I'm talking about. <laughs> oh, I, I assume that. Weird like, hunting friends. <laughs> I'm just sitting here quietly because, I mean, you guys hear how eloquent she was? I mean, that's amazing. I, I don't even speak that eloquently. It's a, I mean, it's that's a topic impre- that I've talked about many, many, many times. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, I'm just gonna I'm gonna sit here being one of those strange hunting friends and just stay quiet the rest of the show. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, I I appreciate uh, you speaking up so on that, and you know, again. If it hasn't been signed by the governor, I would imagine there's still an opportunity for hunters who live in Wisconsin, residents of Wisconsin, to voice their opinion for or against. Yeah, so. I yep, I think there is still there may be a public comment period going on right now or upcoming. I think there might be one more opportunity. So I'm really hoping that people step up and voice their opinions on that one. Awesome. Very cool, Cameron. Well, thank you, Elena, and thank you, Brett, for joining us. Uh, awesome talk. I really enjoyed hearing these studies and just get to talk to y'all. It's always such a treat to, to hear what folks who are, you know, studying and doing what they can to help the wild turkey, what they got going on. So I, I sure appreciate what y'all do for us. Amen. Thank you so much for having me. I'm glad to do it. Yeah, guys, thanks for yeah, having we'll me have as you well. Yeah. We'll consider Brett for a third <laughs> round, but Lena, you're definitely going to come. <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, no, I, I, I'm okay. Oh. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Brett, I'll just call you sometime and we'll just talk. Cameron doesn't have to be on. Yeah, I could give you some directions. If he's if he's going to act like that, then I'm not going to give him any location. No. <laughs> I just got moved even further down the list of, of people. <laughs> yes, indeed. Thank you both. We really do appreciate your time and the information that you shared with us. is It's really helpful, and I know the listeners are going to love this episode. So, again, just to reiterate what Cameron said, thanks a bunch, and hopefully we'll get you both on sometime again soon. And if we don't talk to you prior, best of luck this coming season to both of you. Thank you. Thanks, guys. All right. Have a good night. Yeah.
Where do you start after an interview like that? Do you just rehash the whole thing because it was all very good? Yeah, I mean... How do you pick highlights out of that to rehash? If I was somebody listening to this in Marinette County, Wisconsin, I'd be like, sweet. I know our turkey affairs should be in good order. You know, no joke, yeah. And LSU, if, if I was a student wanting to go to graduate school and study turkeys, I think I'd be calling... I guess you could call Mike Chamberlain so he could refer you to Brett Collier. Yeah, let him turn you down <laughs> and send you to Brett. Yeah, that's pretty funny. That was a funny story, but that, that's pretty classic. Oh, that is classic. Yeah, yeah but I, I'm pumped Brett came back on with us. He's, he's awesome, always been a fun interview, and, and yeah. really glad to have Elena join us. I'm sure we'll get her back, maybe, maybe talk Wisconsin again. You know, with those regulation changes and things, I'd like to keep up with how that goes. Yeah, and you know, it's great to get a professional's opinion on those regulation changes, Mm -hmm. like a biologist who lives in that state, and you get a different perspective on things, you know, whereas the average person may look at these changes and say, hey, this is great, it's going to simplify things, but then you have a biologist that's over here, it's like, hey, no, okay, it's a little bit confusing, but it's set up ideally, it's set up perfectly to manage wild turkeys. Yeah, they know how many birds they can kill. They're spreading out the pressure over the season. They're not killing too many on the front end. Yeah. Pretty bomb season structure, in my opinion. I don't know why a state, especially these days, if what you're doing is working, why are you wanting to change? You know, the rest of the world's scrambling to keep their turkey populations. Yours is looking okay, but okay, hey, let's change some stuff up. Yeah. Yeah. I don't I don't get it. it. It's the old adage if it if it ain't broke, don't fix it. And if you simplify it, well, aren't you cutting out some revenue by the game wardens not being able to write more tickets for people that don't understand it? <laughs> <laughs> there you go. Oh, man. That, see, another factor we didn't even consider there. That's exactly. perfect. Exactly. Yeah. But yeah, so. no, that I think we'll definitely broach that topic again, especially if the changes are made, we'll have to get her back. Or if they're not made, we'll get her back to discuss, you know, how that went and why they do what they do. I'll be very interested in that. Yeah. It's it's cool doing this podcast. And once you get into traveling or whatever for turkey hunting, it, it's like you keep up with the whole nation of turkeys, you know, <laughs> instead of oh, just yeah. your back 40. Oh, yeah. I mean, I'm I'm a fan of wild turkeys in Wisconsin or California or Maine. You know, let's like protect them, them everywhere. Yeah, so it's not I might like go I just want to. You know. Yeah, I don't want to protect just the ones in my backyard. Yeah, exactly right. And it's you know, I've done public comments in other states before. They don't just open it up to residents. A lot of times, they open up to both. So if if they open a public comment period for Wisconsin, we'll let you guys know. I don't know if there is one available now, but you know, if you hunt Wisconsin or you plan to go hunt Wisconsin, you might shoot their DNR an email and tell them your thoughts. Yeah, they take public comment very seriously. I, I believe they do at least most states. Yeah, yeah, so that would be awesome. a good thing to do. That that was just a great interview from top to bottom. You know, a lot of fun but also just some amazing information and some insight. And I don't think that Cameron or I need to spell it out. No, I think Elena did perfectly. Go back and listen to it again if if you need to 
get some more points out of it, but that should teach you how turkeys react to hunters, how most hunters are acting, and what you can do to be different than most hunters, and that helps, no yes. doubt. So yep. All right. that was helpful for everyone. I would like to offer the favor of the week. Oh, man. All right, go. <laughs> go catch a coon. February's upon us. Most all states allow trapping through the month of February if your state allows it. If your state allows you to trap past February, which I know Missouri's talking about doing, go trap nest predators especially, or if you're proficient enough to catch coyotes, bobcats, that kind of thing, go catch some. I think everybody that kills turkeys would go catch three coons a year. I think it would make a difference. It may not, but it might. I definitely don't think it hurts anything anything to help reduce the raccoon population in your area so that's my favorite of the week if time allows a couple dog proof traps go pre-bait an area for a week if you can throw them out there for a weekend try to catch three or four that's the favorite of the week can i give my favor of the week too all right bonus favor let's have it bonus favor of the week go catch a coon and then tag us on social media Boom. but Do listen that. be careful with that don't show the coon in the trap. Yeah. Just, uh, it, it, we know what's going to happen to that raccoon. <laughs> but some people out there don't know. So just take a picture of the trophy after the fact. Yeah. Present yeah. it in a nice way, of course. And yeah. tag us in that. I've already gotten two of those so far, and I would love to see, oh, I don't know, 2,200 of them. Yeah. 10,000 so, 10, raccoons being killed across the country in nice presentable photos i'm in send them on who was it a couple of years was it dave a couple of years ago that coined the hashtag save the pulse no that was um jay hembry yeah yeah there yeah. you go yeah, yeah he, so. he joined us for an episode called save the pulse and that's right we're in we're in save the pulse season right now February yeah. is when most states, the latest, they'll allow you to catch them so you can actually try to make a difference. The later and closer to turkey season you can remove those predators from the landscape, the better your odds are of other ones not moving in. So Exactly. Let's hey. hashtag save the pulse, baby. Yes. So can I say one other thing? Yeah. The more that you and I stay on here talking, the less time that the listeners have to go out and trap coons and possums. So what do, do you it. think? I'm going to bring you all Camo's coon count every week. So we're at one right now. Hopefully it's at 10 by next week. Are you going to give a simultaneous count in Espanol? (laughs) Uno coon. All right. I like it. We're in there. All right. Wraps up, man. Thank you guys so much for tuning in this week. We know that you have choices. We appreciate you spending your time with us. We hope you have a wonderful week and we look forward to seeing you again next week. Goodbye. Goodbye. Thanks for tuning in. You were just listening to the Turkey Hunter podcast. If you enjoyed the show, please go on over to iTunes and leave a five-star review. And make sure to head over to www.iamturkeyhunting.com to subscribe for free turkey hunting tips, tactics, strategies, and product reviews to help you have a more successful turkey season. And stay tuned for upcoming episodes on hunting afternoon birds, how to film your hunt, and the breeding cycle of hens, as well as some guest interviews. Thanks again for listening. 
We know your time is valuable, and we appreciate you sharing some of it with us. See you next week.